We're studying right now the Context Bible. We've got 36 minutes. Let's tune in to some of the readings that we did this week. And the context of what we want to talk about that, that was the theme behind the week, as I put it through this lesson at least, was in the midst of... Uh, uh, Stephen defending his faith and proclaiming the faith of Jesus, what Stephen was really about was a discussion of intimacy with Almighty God. A discussion of how, uh, uh, and we'll borrow uh, uh, Francis's painting of uh, the the Pope's uh, Sistine Chapel, but it's not the finger of God almost touching the finger of Adam. Now we're at a place in history where the heart of God can be found and the spirit of God can be found within the heart of man. And the intimacy is much greater than almost touching. And so the key for us to understand that when we look at David specifically is there's a combination of David having a heart that pursued God with the spirit of God bringing forth a level of intimacy that he couldn't have otherwise. And so that type of a key is, is, might help us understand where our intimacy with God can come about. It takes the heart that pursues God and wants God, even as God's pursuing man, but it, it takes also God's spirit to bring about this intimacy. And the unique thing about David in the Old Testament is David is the one where Samuel said that the Lord, this was after Saul botched it a bit, the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. We had that in the readings last, or the week before this, this week we've just finished. But then we add to it the fact that the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. If we go to the Elmo for a moment, I want to make sure we're all on the same page about the Spirit of God and the way it's taught to us biblically. The, the biblical teaching is that um, in the Old Testament, if we do a timeline, and, and we in this timeline, let's go back, and this is the Old Testament time. In the Old Testament time, the Spirit of God would selectively come upon people. There would be a prophet who would have the Spirit of God come upon him. The Spirit of God rushed upon David on that day. It was a selective working of the Spirit on people. And and that's the way it was. Now, understand the prophet Joel said that there would be a day where God would pour out His Spirit on all of His children. But that is not the case in the Old Testament. That's not even the case at the time of the crucifixion of Jesus. If we look right before Jesus is crucified, during that time period before, in John 14, 15, and 16, Jesus has His final discourse with the apostles. And in it, he talks about the Holy Spirit will come. And when the Holy Spirit comes, all of these things will happen. But he says, I'm going to send you another helper, the spirit of truth. And and, and Jesus said to his apostles, you know him because he's with you. He's with you. How was he with them? In Jesus, because the Holy Spirit fully indwelt Jesus. Jesus and the Holy Spirit are one. You'll know him 
or you know him right now because he's with you, but he will, and the tense changes, he will be in you. It will be different. The apostles truly didn't have a clue what Jesus was even talking about. You can see that from the interchange and the dialogue. But Jesus says, when the Holy Spirit comes, then you'll understand. Then you'll remember. Then it'll make sense to you and you'll be convicted about the truth of what God has done for you and me. So just after this speech, Peter can deny Jesus. He's scared to death. He's scared of the servant girl outside the high priest in the garden of the high priest area. That's the same Peter after the Holy Spirit comes that Pastor Avery was preaching about today that stands in front of the high priest with all the boldness in the world and doesn't just say, this is Jesus who did it. says, this is Jesus Christ of Nazareth whom you crucified. That boldness and understanding came because of what happened on Pentecost. On Pentecost, the prophecy of Joel came true. And the Holy Spirit, in the New Testament times, since Pentecost, the Holy Spirit indwells all of God's children. It's not just some of us. It's everyone with faith in Jesus. And that's the difference. So within the framework of that, we can see in David an intimacy with God. But the intimacy of God with David is one that, oh, sorry to say, I thought I brought my Bible. Is The intimacy of God with David is one, if we could go back, yeah, thank you. The intimacy of God with David is one that comes about not only because his heart is there, but because of the Spirit of God. You will not have intimacy with the Lord apart from the work of Jesus on the cross. This is part of the same blessings that Pastor Avery delivered this morning. You cannot have intimacy with God without standing right before God, which is what, with the death of Christ, we're able to do. Now, if we go then, I want to look at three different vignettes out of what we read last week that dealt with uh, um, uh, David's life and, and look, give us a glimpse into his intimacy with God and where it makes a difference. And the first one is a time of disappointment. That may not be a major disappointment to you. and You may not see it as a time of major disappointment. But I think it's a major disappointment. Here is what we have. So David is reached a point where he decides... He wants to build a temple to God. He wants to build a house to God. We see it in 2 Samuel 7. And if we look at 2 Samuel 7, we start with, uh, where are we? We start with the beginning. Are we on the, there we go. 2 Samuel 7. Now, when the king lived in his house and Yahweh had given him rest from all his enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, look, I have a nice house of cedar. Oops. The ark of God is in a tent. Nathan says to the king, go do all that's in your heart. Yahweh is with you. But then that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan and he said, 
Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? And, 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 and God says to Nathan, and Nathan reports back to David, that David, in essence, has shed so much blood. And David has been a warrior king. And even though God's going to bless David and he's going to bless his children and he's going to bless his house, David doesn't get to build the house to the Lord. That honor, that opportunity will be going to his son. And since then, the first temple has been called Solomon's temple. It's not been called David's. David doesn't get that um, accolade, nor did David get that opportunity. And that's what David wanted to do. I love to build. I would have wanted to have built it too. So when David finds out he can't build it, look what happens. I'm going to make some notes as we go along, see if I can get notes on the side of this. So David hears about it, and he doesn't mope, and he doesn't whine, and he doesn't complain, and he doesn't take it out on his dog. He doesn't go get comfort food. He doesn't use any of the typical tools. He goes in, and he sits before the Lord, and he prays. In the midst of his disappointment, he prays. And we get a lot from his prayer. In his prayer, David says, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? He's not whining. He's not saying, Gee, why didn't I get to do this? Why, why, I got the money. I got the time, I got the resources, I'm the king. I want to build a temple. I want to do this deed for my God. God said, no, that's not your deed to do. And David prays and his prayer shows such a, an humble heart, his humility is readily apparent. Who am I, O Lord, and what is my house that you brought me thus far? It reminds me of what my dad used to say. Whenever something would be disappointing, or whenever something bad would happen, if I heard this once, I heard it a thousand times. Dad would say, if that's the worst thing that happens, we're going to have a great day. You spill milk. If that's the worst thing that happens, we're going to have a great day. You fall off your bike, you skin your knee. If that's the worst thing that happens, we're going to have a great day. You didn't get picked first for the basketball team. Or if you're playing, you didn't get to start. Or if you started, you didn't get to score. If that's the worst thing that happens, you're going to have a good day. David's got that attitude. 
Who am I, O Lord, and what is my house that you've brought me thus far? Yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You've spoken also of your servant's house. Because God said, here's what I'm going to do in your life, David. You've spoken of your servant's house. For a great while to come, this is instruction for mankind. What more can David say to you? You know your servant, O Lord God. Because of your promise, according to your heart, you've brought about all this greatness. Let's see if I can keep that on there. Greatness to make your servant know it. You see in the theme here? David's attitude is his role before God is not to be the awesome, mighty king. The king serves. You see the reflection of David's heart in this? The idea that someone mighty would be a servant? That's what David is. He's looking to serve the Lord. And so then he continues. He says, therefore, you're great, O God, for there is none like you. There's no God besides you, according to all that we've heard with our ears. And he begins to develop his statements of faith in God. And he affirms who God is. There's no one like you. There's no one besides you. According to all we've heard with our ears, who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people whom you redeemed a nation. You established for yourself a people. And here we've got David not only in faith, but moving into praise and worship. Look at it in verses 24 and following. You established yourself a people, Israel. You became their God. Confirm forever the word you've spoken concerning your servant and his house. Do as you've spoken. Your name will be magnified forever. The Lord of hosts is God over Israel. And the house of your servant David will be established before you. You, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Because that's what God said. God says, you want to build me a house? No. But I am going to build one for you, David. And I'm going to take care of your house. So your servants found courage to pray this prayer to you. O Lord, you are God. Your words are true. You've promised this good thing to your servant. May it please you to bless the house of your servant. O Lord God, you have spoken. And your blessing, with your blessing, shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. We go back to the PowerPoint. That's David. Reaction. In the midst of disappointment with God, what David does is he comes with prayer, humility, service, faith, and praise and worship. And that's a pretty good point for home for us. Prayer, humility, service, 
faith and praise in the midst of disappointment. All right, second vignette. Great days. I love great days. Those days where the sun is out, the wind's behind you, things are just going fantastic. Those days when you look at your friends or your spouse, you say, we need to remember today because at some point we're going to say, you remember the good old days when? And we'll be talking about today. Because there are days that are great days. David had a great day. He had a great day where he got to move the tent back and the tabernacle of the Lord back. And the ark was placed into a tabernacle. And, and he appointed a feast. He got all this great food that he gave to all of the people of Israel. He got singers. He got musicians. And he wrote a song for the event. And it's an incredible song. First Chronicles 16 has the song. And I'd like us to look at it for a second and consider what it has to say. First Chronicles 16, starting with verse 8. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name, make his deeds among, make known his deeds among the people. Sing praises to him. Tell of all his wondrous works. Now let's pause for a moment and let's look at this great day stuff. I'll put us a little note card up here. This is great day reaction of the intimate David with God. His day is great. And we got to be careful. Because the tendency when your day is great is to just sit back and soak it up. But the intimate with God, who's got God's heart and the Spirit of God, will take that great day and in intimacy turn it into a time of praise, of giving credit to God for the greatness of the day. And look at that praise. It is praise in two directions. So we'll have it as uh, praise. It's praise that goes up. You sing to God. But it's also praise that goes to others. Because you're singing and proclaiming his great deeds to others. So it's also praise about God as well as to God. And that's the way it starts out. Give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Give thanks to him. Call upon his name. But also make known among the peoples what he's done. So it's, it's two directions. And then if we continue to work through this, sing to him, sing praises, tell of all his wondrous works, glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Now, if we've learned Hebrew poetry in this class, if I've done my job and you've been in here, what is it that makes Hebrew poetry poetry? You remember? It duplicates itself. It's not rhyming. That was another one of my dad's things he taught us growing up. 
Roses are red, violets are blue. Most poems rhyme, but this one doesn't. (laughs) And you wonder why I'm not normal. I could not have grown up normal with that dad. Hebrew poetry does not rhyme, but it repeats an idea in a way, sometimes in a contrasting way, sometimes in a in a, a an echoing way so that you get a fuller sense of the meaning and you, you, you chew on it, you munch on it, you keep it in your mouth and you move it around and you taste it and you try to figure out why the nuanced difference between the first line and the second. And that gives you the poetry. So let me give you some examples. Look at verse 12 of this poetry, this song. And see if you can see the parallelism. Remember the wondrous works that he has done. His miracles and the judgments he uttered. So we've got two columns here. Column A and column B. Remember the wondrous works... That's in the first stanza, column A. And these are the wondrous works that he has done, that God did. You got it? You see how that's in that first stanza? Remember the wondrous works that he has done. Wondrous works he has done. Then the parallel stanza. Remember his miracles and judgments... He uttered. All right. Are you able to see that God's wondrous works, we're supposed to consider his wondrous works, not just his miracles, but also his judgments. See, I'm quick to give God wondrous works for his miracles. And healing that lame guy, that was an incredible Miracle, a wondrous work of God. But judgments? What God did, what God said, what God uttered, what came forth from God. They're parallel. Can you see that? Let's do one more and then I'll show you why this is important. Just look at verse 13. We'll just bump down one more. We'll have A and we'll have B. All right. O offspring of Israel, his servant. So offspring of Israel. And then the B part of that is his servant. Whoops. All right, you with me? Look at the second line. Sons of Jacob. His chosen ones. Offspring of Israel, sons of Jacob. Makes sense. But the nuanced difference here is his servants are his chosen ones. We're not his servants because we were sold into slavery. We're not his servants because we were desperate and we needed some place to hang and somebody to feed us and house us. 
We're his servants because he chose us. He picked us. He said, I want you, Holly, to be singing this morning for me. He chose us. He chose you. You do this for God, not because you just thought of it and you're so resourceful and you've got such a kind and pious heart and you're just going to go take care of the Lord's needs. He chose you. He's called you. He's picked you out of the entire planet to be exactly where your molecules will be today. It's powerful. All right, now, the thrust of this is in verse 11. And the problem with doing it, and the reason we're writing it on the sheet is, verse 11 starts at the bottom of this column, and then we're going to get punch drunk when we move up to the top of that one, and it's going to be really hard to keep that going. How you feeling? <laughs> Car sick yet? Okay, so that's why we've got our sheet of paper. It's going to help us, because I want us to see the point of this poetry of David's, the intimate of God. He says, we got column A and column B. All right, I got to make sure this shows up. He says, seek the Lord, seek, and that's the Lord capitalized, so that's Yahweh, seek Yahweh, and his strength. E-N-G-T-H. Okay, this is not turning out well. Sorry. Seek Yahweh and his strength. And look at the parallel passage. Seek his presence continually. Hmm. Well, that doesn't seem to fit. There's no A and B, is there? That's because it's A and B. It's both of them. His presence continually. That second one echoes the first one. It just echoes it with one phrase. Seek Yahweh. Seek His strength. Seek His presence. And that Hebrew word for presence is the word face. Continually. Here's what David's saying. You want the strength of God? You'll find it in the presence of God. You want the strength of God? You'll find it in intimacy with God. You want the strength of God? You want Yahweh in your life? You want God's presence. Because strength is found in the presence of God. It's an amazing passage. It's an amazing passage that I just really, really like. So, we've got, uh, if we go back to our little card we're making. Yeah. We've got praise to and about God. This is for the great days. And the great days are days to seek God. They're not days to take the vacation. They're days that can build you up and make you stronger. Because what happens 
is there'll be days that aren't those great days. There'll be days of disappointment. Maybe I should have flipped them in this lesson. But you remember the disappointing days. One of the things David did is said, God, I remember what you used to do. Go read Psalm 42 and 43 from David. I, he says, my life's miserable. Everything's horrible. Everything's falling apart. But this I remember. I remember. Look, I'll do better here. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come? When will I appear? My tears are all I can eat. I've lost my appetite. I cry all the time. Day and night. I'm not sleeping. And people are saying to me all day long, where's your God? If he's real, you wouldn't be in this mess. The reaction that David has, these things I remember as I pour out my soul. I remember the good days. How I would go with the throng, lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts, songs of a praise, a multitude-keeping festival. And then give yourself that talk. Why are you cast down, O oh my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. The good days will come again. I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. I love that. And the best part of that psalm, in Psalm 43, which was originally part of the same psalm, is it's not something that's just a band-aid on cancer. Because if you've ever experienced the travails and the true difficulties that will keep you up at night, that will cause you to cry and lose your appetite, simply saying, well, I remember God's taking care of me and I know that He will doesn't always make it go away, does it? And it doesn't for him either. The psalmist says, Meanwhile, everything is horrible. And it's still terrible. And I still feel horrible. Deep calls to deep. All your breakers and your waves, they've gone over me. Even by day the Lord commands His steadfast love. At night His songs with me a prayer. But I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Why is this deadly wound in my bones as my adversaries taunt me as they say, where's your God? He gives himself the same speech. Why are you cast down? See, this is what we have here in David. We have a, a gentleman, if we go back to the PowerPoint, we have a gentleman uh, who's intimate with God, who's seeking his face. And so what we have is great days, days that move him to praise, though, not to ignore him. Days that move him to seek God's strength so that he'll have it on the other days where he needs it. Days that move him to worship. Those are the great days that's my point for home, Lord, on the great days. Help me to praise you. Help me to seek your strength and your face and your presence. And may I worship you. Last one. Sin. Ooh. Ooh. We've only got four minutes. We can't do sin justice, but you know the story. It's David and Bathsheba. Bathsheba's bathing on the roof of her house. If you've ever been to Jerusalem... 
You know that it's on hills and the house of the David to the king would just be less than the temple. But other than that, King David's palace is up at the top of the hill. They bathe. She's bathing on the rooftop. She has no modesty in the process. And it's not a bad thing. Uriah, her husband's in a decent house, it looks like. The only one who can really look down on her is the king because his roof's taller. David sees her and he's drawn in with lust. He takes her conjugally. She's pregnant. Meanwhile, her husband is off fighting David's battles for him. And David has a rule. His troops have to be celibate while they're fighting a battle and a war. So their focus will be on the Lord and what they're about. While David's not with the troops and is philandering with one of his fighter's wives. So David instructs the general to send Uriah, the husband, back home so that the husband can lay with his wife, and then they'll just think the baby's premature. The husband comes home, Uriah, but won't lay with his wife. He says, I can't do that. We're in battle. I'm going to honor my vow of chastity. So David says, oh, this is not good. What am I going to do? I don't know. I'll get him drunk. So David gets Uriah drunk and says, now just go home and sleep it off with your wife. Bathsheba, you'll know what to do when he gets there. Uriah says, no. Uriah, when he's drunk, is more pious than David, who's sober as church. Uriah says, huh? So finally David writes a note to the general Joab. Says to Joab, how's it going? Hope it's going well. Listen. I need you to do me a favor. I need you to put Uriah at the point of the big attack. And when the attack happens and the battle's coming, retreat everybody but Uriah. And the suicide note, if you will, or the death issuance, he folds up and gives to Uriah. And says, hey, would you take this to Joab? Don't read it. And Uriah is so responsible, he doesn't read it. Joab thinks, I'm going to do a little better than that. I'll at least put troops in, put him with the troops. I don't know what David's up to. But sure enough, Uriah gets killed. And into that context comes David. And he writes Psalm 51. But he doesn't write it immediately. Because he doesn't even see his own sin. It's only when he's finally confronted that sin. In Psalm 51. And it's after Nathan comes to him. And it's an elaborate story. And it's a great story. He comes. Nathan comes to him and says. Gives him a parable about a man's last sheep. Being robbed and killed. David says. "Who, Who took that man's sheep? We need to put him to death. And Nathan says. You did. The sheep was Bathsheba. And David, in his sin, cries out, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. This is how the intimate of God deals with his sin. The intimate of God seeks God's mercy. It says, According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. The intimate of God sees the sin. 
doesn't make excuses, takes responsibility. I know my transgression, my sins ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned. I've done what's evil in your sight. You're justified in your words. You're blameless in your judgment. Takes responsibility. That's, that's, that's repentance. We're seeing repentance being expressed. Even with the consequences, you then experience the forgiveness of God. And he says, oh, and this is neat. I mean, this also reinforces what I said about the Holy Spirit. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit to me, from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me with a willing spirit. And that's what we have. We have an experience of forgiveness. So we're a minute over and people have to go get kids. But let's go back to the PowerPoint real quick and sum it up this way. You seek mercy. You take responsibility for your sin. You see what it is and you acknowledge it. You repent and you confess it. And, and, and it's not a good thing. When you're done with that, God is faithful to forgive. And God does forgive. And so you can walk in forgiveness. You walk in forgiveness. And that's uh, the lessons from the intimacy of God. Would you pray with me? Father, it's my prayer that you would bless everyone hearing your message through words that may not have been the most artful, but your message, Father, penetrates beyond the words of me or anybody else. And so it is my prayer that your words will penetrate, that we will seek your face. Lord, make your presence so real in the lives of your chosen ones. May we experience the faith and the responsibility of being chosen, knowing that your spirit empowers us to walk before you in holiness. Father, it's my prayer that all of us will grow in intimacy with you through disappointment, through strong days, through sin, until we are one with you in eternity. Through Jesus our Lord. Amen.